You're listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 38, Medical Student Syndrome. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we bring together medical students, junior doctors and expert guests to discuss all the things that you need to know to be a good doctor that you don't necessarily get taught at medical school. I'm Nikki and I'm the Editorial Scholar here at the BMJ and I'm also a medical student at the University of Manchester. So if you're a regular listener, you might notice that there's been a bit of a change because it's my first time officially hosting Sharp Scratch, so please be kind to me. But there are lots of friendly and familiar faces in our virtual studio because I'm joined by our regular panel members, Anna and Oki. Anna, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, My name's Anna. I am a final year medical student at King's College London. And until very recently, I was um, sat where Nikki is sitting now in the sort of virtual hosting seat so I'm very excited to be here as a panelist today. Well I'm so glad that you're still here with us and good moral support for me too. I'm glad I'm still here with you too (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) And Oki do you want to introduce yourself as well? Hello hi I am Oki I am a fourth year medical student at the University of Dundee which is the sunniest city in Scotland. (laughs) And I'm also delighted to welcome our expert guest Professor Sir Simon Wesley. Simon would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm a 50-year medical student, um, I suppose, but I'm the Professor of Psychiatry at King's College London, so it's always nice to be. I'm President of the Society for the Abolition of Zoom Calls and PowerPoint and all things like that. But um, I'm an academic psychiatrist and the Regis Chair here at King's. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today. today is to attempt to unravel a topic or perhaps a pattern that's relevant to a lot of medical students and that's the concept of medical student syndrome. So I'm not sure how many of you have also experienced this but it's a pattern of behaviour I quickly picked up in myself but also in my peers and course mates when you're learning about a new disease you can suddenly quite quickly convince yourself that you have it. So I don't know about you guys but I was really convinced that I had von Willebrand's disease for a solid amount of time. Anna and Oki, have either of you ever experienced this? Um, yeah, so for the first couple of years of med- medicine I convinced myself I had a condition for every block I studied for a while. But at the same time, for some of them, it turns out I did actually have a condition. So like, yeah. So maybe it w- I-, I feel like my anxiety and fears were justified in some of- in some cases. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Anna, what about you? Yeah, I so I've spoken on the podcast before about um, the problems that I've had with anxiety, um, like in my life. And one of them was surrounding public transport and another um like big anxiety that i had was was health anxiety so there was there was a period of time in my life where genuinely every single day i was thinking that i was having a subarachnoid hemorrhage like genuinely it would it would haunt my like nightmares and my waking like my waking hours and i thought about it so much that it actually like genuinely started to affect my mental health quite badly I remember thinking at the time, like, if I'd never learned about this at med school, like, would I be having these fears? Like, would this be, like, so pervasive in my life? I mean, I guess, like Oki was saying, I know people who have, like, have actually, like, found out they've got something wrong um, based on, Mm. you know, something they've learned at med school. So I think it's a bit tricky. 
Definitely. And that's something that I want to discuss a little bit later as well with a interview that we've got with a guest externally. But I guess what I'd really like to explore a little bit is why we do this. And Simon, do you have any ideas as to why this is so common <laughs> in medical students? Sorry, I thought you were going to ask if I'd had medical student syndrome as well. Um, I mean, the problem was when I was a medical student, it was still in the era of leeches, bleeding and demonic possession. Um, So it was all very different all those years ago before the First World War. Um, But actually, yeah, I think we we did all have that. But also, I did also have the issue, I actually did have a, a, a... a bone cancer when I was a student, which took a while to pick up for the for the same reason. So it, it is always important in these issues to remember in, whenever we're talking about anything that might be a mental health problem, the first thing is you always need to have a good, a reasonable assessment and to remember that uh, the, you know it is very difficult sometimes to separate out physical and psychological disorders if, if ever such a division is possible but but always remember that's the first thing is your first duty is to make sure that you know common things like anemia uh, etc have been excluded then we can get on to the issue we're talking about which is health anxiety definitely so do you have any ideas as to why it is so common that medical students decide that they have something that they're studying well the first thing is to remember that anxiety itself is incredibly common and uh, medical students are not immune indeed they're far from immune from the, the same kind of conditions that everyone suffers from so the first principle to remember is that if you do get anxious or depressed for whatever reason one of the things that always goes up is a the number of symptoms that you experience and b the um, concerns that you might have that um, you are suffering from von Willebrand's disease or cancer or HIV or whatever and this is irrespective of whether you're a medical student or not And if we just take the general student population, about 25% of students at any one time have what we call common mental disorders, anxiety, depression, stress being the the usual. And that rate has gone up in a time of COVID as it has in the general population. So the question isn't why should medical students get it? The first thing is why does everybody get this? And then we can talk about why are medical students more likely to get this? So it's a kind of two-stage process and then why? So which, which do you want to talk about first? Your call. I, I guess why, why everyone does it first of all then makes more sense to go first. I mean, the, the easy bits are that um, when you get anxious, um, you get symptoms, okay? And, you know, this, even when I was a student, there was just enough physiology known that we know that when you get anxious, you get somatic symptoms, which have a very good physiological cause. So you, your heart beats faster, you sweat more, you get abdominal pain, you get headaches, all of these things, which are perfectly well understood as due to, you know, the basic physiology of anxiety on the production of adrenaline, blah, 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 all of that stuff that... Um, um, even at King's, you must have been taught, uh, I, I hope, Anna. Um, and, and then the question is, so you get symptoms. Then the question is, what do you think they're due to? Now, you might say, okay, I know what this is due to. I'm feeling very stressed. I've got an exam coming up. Um, I haven't, I've been stuck inside for 14 days self-isolating, all of this stuff, and I'm worried about all sorts of things. And obviously, then, the reason that I'm feeling this way is because I've got anxiety. Okay, that's fair enough. But... Actually, that's a little unusual 
most people's first um, um, attribution, we call it, is to think I have a physical illness. And that's actually quite sensible because actually, although it's unusual as a student to have a physical cause of the symptoms I've just described, it's not unknown. And actually, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you want to get those sorted out quicker. Okay, because sometimes there will be a serious illness that if left unchecked may cause a lot of mischief. Anxiety is unlikely to do that. So it's quite normal, and we call this somatization, but we have a, there's this idea that actually somatization is unusual, but it isn't. It's the commonest way for common mental disorders to present. And, and there's a good reason for that. So it's not, in fact, it's unusual to psychologize common somatic symptoms. That's the unusual presentation, although I have to say that has been changing in recent years as people's awareness of mental illness has changed and the stigma uh, about mental disorders has gone down. But it hasn't gone away and it still remains the case. I would first of all want to know that I haven't got thyrotoxicosis, I haven't got anemia. Um, highly unlikely I would have a subarach or a brain tumour, I have to say, and, and you know, that, that would be very unusual. But other common things are common. So that, that's why, first of all, we somatise. That's a completely normal thing to do. And then we might start to psychologise and think, well, OK, I haven't got that. What else is going on? And, and we may come to the conclusion that this is a symptom of anxiety. Unfortunately, the, the, the physiology of anxiety is so well understood um, that it's not a very difficult conclusion to come to, so long as you're mindful of, of, of that's a possibility. I certainly feel like I understand that a lot better now. Um, Anna and Oki, do you guys think that the reason that medical students are more likely to jump to these conclusions or maybe do them quicker is because of the extent of knowledge that we have or the number of lists of symptoms that we're exposed to on a daily basis? So I think there's kind of two things um, that come to mind when I was just reflecting on um, what Simon was saying. It's firstly that we have, as you, I think, alluded to or touched upon, and something that we've discussed before, like on the podcast, is that medical students are a kind of self-selected group of people, right? And there is a tendency for certain personality types to be attracted to medicine as a career. Um, and often those are people who are perhaps more likely to have things like anxiety and depression. And we've also talked about like the environment that you're in at medical school and the way that that, you know, can affect your mental health and stuff. So I think there's no, it's no surprise that like anxiety specifically around health would also be more common in that cohort of people. But I think definitely like the other thing you said about like, what is it? There's a, there's an actual saying, isn't it? Like a little bit of knowledge is actually worse <laughs> than no knowledge, right? I think it's a, it's a dangerous thing, I think, is yeah, what you're looking to. Yeah, that's the one. I'm, sh I'm sure it's Shakespeare. Yeah, and that's, about I my, actually think that's so true. <laughs> I actually think that is so true like I think as well as a medical student you're always like very excited about unusual things as well so you're like oh look at this interesting presentation of this common disease or this this presentation of like this really rare disease and I think you do have more of awareness of an awareness that certain like strange sort of non-specific symptoms can have a sinister actual organic cause and I think much more than if you were you know just like a 
quote unquote normal student. Sorry, Oki. Oki doesn't like it when I do air quotes. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> did you feel my side eye? <laughs> as you did? Yeah, I did. Um, but I think, um, yeah, it's it's. I don't think that there's any surprise that having a little that little bit of knowledge, like. But I remember, like, as a child, like learning about poisons in chemistry and like actually lying in bed that night and thinking like what would happen if I like like came into contact with some ricin like this little girl in Kent is gonna get you know but so I think there's definitely like something in some people's personalities that makes Mm. you more likely to like ruminate on things like that um because I I would say like just before this episode I was as the nerd that I am, I was reading a paper about like medical student syndrome and it kind of um, compared medical students to law students and some other students. And there was like, there was no difference um, in terms of like medical student syndrome symptoms between law students and medical students. So I, I, I would say I do kind of agree with you that there must be like something within people's personality, like mm-hmm. the self-selected group that medical students are within our personality that just makes us more inclined to think about everything a bit extra than other people, non-medical people or law people apparently do. I think just to play the boring boffin just for a second, I think it's slightly disputed that there are some studies that show medical students are more prone to this than other students and a couple, uh, one of them being a law student study actually, I must admit, I think all lawyers are really weird, um, <laughs> unlike, unlike medical students of the salt of the earth. So I'd be very surprised if that was the case. But no, to be serious, it, it's uh, slightly disputed. Um, and, and you do get a, a big range of what we call prevalences of um, basically anxieties, uh, symptoms in, in students. Overall, it is still worth remembering that the fact that you're a student of whatever ever subject means actually you should have better mental health than people of the same age are not students. And this goes against what you might read if you have seen, if you uh, follow all, all the media at the moment, which seems to think the students are uniquely vulnerable to mental disorders, but they're not actually. They are students in general are selected because they come from backgrounds that make them less likely to suffer from uh, mental health problems and indeed um, for example deliberate self-harm and suicide so you're already doing better if you're in the 50% of people who go to university than the 50% of people who don't. I also think it's quite measuring personality is incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. indeed I would go as far as to say it's almost impossible and that's a good news, actually, because, you know, we went through a period of trying to select medical students on the basis they have the right personality for medicine, which tended to be a kind of cross between a Red Cross worker, a psychiatrist and a GP. Fortunately, we can't do that. You know, it's complete nonsense because actually we need all personality types in medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the best people do psychiatry with the most balanced personalities, but somebody has to be an <laughs> anaesthetist, a surgeon, a pathologist, all these other things. So thank God we can't measure personality and we certainly can't measure it by questionnaire and um, certainly at King's you won't have had your personality assessed because we stopped that about 30 years ago but I don't know in Dundee did you do a personality test when you um, went through selection? 
Um, no, not that I know of. Good, excellent, <laughs> they, good. They, they good. may have done one without me realising. No, I think, I think you would have noticed, yeah. I'm still struggling with the fact that it's, there's, there's sunshine anywhere in Scotland, I must say, <laughs> let alone in Dundee. Like, <laughs> I, I, I would love to show you the beautiful, <laughs> not sunshine that I have right okay. now. Okay, today, today's a bad day, but like, sometimes it's sunny. Anyway, it's a bit, it's... It may not be a myth that different personalities have, have, you know, different rates of symptoms, but what is a myth is that that's easy to measure. It's yeah. not. And mm. when you do do it, it's incredible. It doesn't predict anything. Definitely. So, um, yeah, pers personality testing is by and large, um, you know, uh, uh, most of it, I think, is fairly nonsensical. No, but I am such an INTJ. <laughs> what? <laughs> Myers Briggs personality. Oh God! Oh. <laughs> My sister made me do one of those quizzes the other day. Sat <laughs> there rating different questions on a scale. Yeah, Nikki, have you had your BMJ one? Because they do a personality test, like no. at the BMJ. Yeah, I haven't had that yet. No. Yeah, well, just you wait. Interesting. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> Presumably, you're only selected if you have a highly abnormal personality can therefore work in the world of medical politics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh Oki's just been elected to the BMA, so... Oh, so my all God. Three of us. <laughs> my, my case rests. <laughs> I, I, I am, like, the most normal person I know. <laughs> I think lots of medics have a complex about being normal compared to other medics. Mm. 100%. But that's a whole other... A whole other episode, maybe. I mean, the most <laughs> abnormal people I've met in medicine um, are, and I've met a lot, um, usually think that they're normal. They normally yeah. do. Uh, I am so abnormal, Good guys. Times. Okay. <laughs> Good times. Good times. <laughs> unfortunately, insight and intelligence are not in any way uh, linked at all. Gosh, I'm learning so much today, Nikki. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So I want to come on to talk a little bit more about mental health and medical students in a moment, but that will come right after our message from our sponsors. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. Um, all right, back to the show. So, Simon, one of the things I was really keen to discuss with you today, and I know we've already touched on it a bit, is health anxiety in general and how students over-medicalise symptoms that could be on a spectrum um, when they might be entirely normal. But I guess that this might be even more relevant when it comes to mental illness because so many of those symptoms are already on a spectrum. Yes, I mean, that's right. I mean, certainly in, in, in mental health psychiatry, um, nearly all the disorders that we deal with are on 
on dimensions, we call it, or spectrums if you want. Um, now, the first thing to say is, is that's not actually unique to psychiatry. Um, in most of medicine, most disorders are spectrum-like disorders. You just don't think of it like that. So even cancer, you would think, well, cancer is the most obvious one. I mean, you're either normal or you have cancer. But actually, that's not true. There are degrees of cancer ranging from the very slight to the really, you know, much more extreme. And also cancers themselves, if you look at cervical cancer, etc., and skin cancers, they can start off, there's a dimension to those as well. Diabetes lies on a dimension and we're in the middle of huge arguments, huge arguments with massive ramifications about what, what is diabetes. Mm. So it's not surprising that, for example, you know, the, the differences between sadness and depression are constantly argued about. Um, the only difference being um, that normal people can understand what those arguments are about and can take part in those arguments. The difference between, I was a bit of a quirky kid who read a lot and was crap at sports. Now I might be these days on the quote spectrum. I don't think I was, but I could have been. But all of us could understand that. And we can understand that you know, shyness is not a disorder, but we can move into serious social phobia, which stops us from, you know, interacting with people, which is a disorder. So dimensions are completely normal in mental health. And in general, we have to be really, really careful that we don't go around over-medicalizing and over-diagnosing what are normal emotions. So, you know, as I said, the rate of depression anxiety has gone up in the whole population as a result of COVID. Why? But it's obvious why, and we would not want to pathologize that. It's something that's happened to us as a society, and um, it's deeply uncomfortable. But I don't think anybody would say every single person who now feels anxious, nervous, stressed, depressed, etc., should be getting counseling. We wouldn't think that. Mm. So what we have to think about is when does it cross that boundary which is, by the way, also socially determined, like most of these boundaries are, but we can, start to, we can start to make sense of that when, for example, when I'm so anxious that I can't, things, there are things I can't do. I can't get, get into yeah. a car. I can't take a plane journey. I can't go into a supermarket. I can't maintain a relationship. I can't get a job, you know, uh, all of those things. So when it gets into what we call functional impairment, people like me are getting more interested, when the symptoms become overwhelming or when they become associated with things like suicidal ideation, we would then start to say, right, okay, we're not so keen on that one. We might now be in the territory of disorder where professionalization and medicalization is actually necessary. But it's really important to, to remember that we can also do tremendous harm if we over-professionalize and over-medicalize things like you know, the, the rise in student mental health problems. Um, and when I was president of the Royal College of Psychiatry, which I was, I foolishly said I'd go and talk on psychiatry to every single medical school. I'd forgotten how many bloody medical schools there are. Do you know how many medical schools there are, by the way? 42. How did you know that? Hmm, well, I should have talked to you before I made that so <laughs> promise. I, I thought there were about 20. Anyway, there are. So I went to the lot, and it was about the dangers of over-labeling things like, for example, homesickness. Mm. or loneliness, all of which are, you know, they affect our well-being, exam stress. But I don't think we should be putting them in the same category as obsessive compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, and so on. And so it is important that we don't do that because the solutions are very different. Um, and, you know, people like me 
if we get involved in areas we shouldn't be involved in, and again, the era of trauma, the, the, the story of managing trauma is an absolutely salutary lesson of what happens if people like me get involved too early in people who've been exposed to a sudden traumatic uh, experience. The answer is we make it worse. So it's really important that we don't over-professionalize those issues and are clear about when people like me and everyone in the mental health professions are, are, are helpful and when we're not. Very important. And for nearly all of the things we're talking about today, people like me are not very helpful. Thank you. That's really interesting. Anna and Oki, do you guys have any reflections on any of that? So whilst I was doing my arrest block, I convinced myself I had asthma. Whilst I was doing my ophthalmology block, I convinced myself I had a slightly wonky eye. And I did turn <laughs> out to be correct. And like whilst I was doing GI, I do have a genuine umbilical hernia that I've always had. So like, there's always like that one random person or that, or that one random case that is right. And it's, yeah. I'm thinking not just in terms of medical students, like even from um, lay people when they go online and Google their symptoms, there is there is always that one random person who like um, finds out, oh, actually, I do have this really, really obscure, serious condition. And it always comes out in the news like, oh yeah, the doctor didn't take me seriously at all mm. and everything. So I, I guess what I'm thinking about and is like, how do you sort of manage that as a clinician? So like ensure, ensuring that people who may have a health anxiety about, about a condition, how do you manage it to help them feel heard and not feel like they've been dismissed at all in case it does turn out that they, that they yeah. do have this really obscure condition. I mean, I think there's two things. First of all, to remember that most people with symptoms don't present. So the fact that you presented already means you are more worried and concerned about your symptoms than everyone else. So at any one time, just let me just test on you then, Anna. What percentage of the population, if you ask them, have you had a headache in the last 28 days, will answer yes. What, what do you reckon the answer to that oh, one is? Really high, guess. like 60% of people or something? Yeah, it's actually about 50%. And if you ask about tired all the time, you get about 30%. So most of those are, are not concerned about their, their symptoms and, and, and manage them in their own way. And that's how it is, and that's how it's always been, and that's fine. So the fact that someone's presented already means they're either more severe or it's more disabling or they're more concerned about it. And, and then I guess the next bit is that, you know, we, we run a, a big clinic for people with unexplained symptoms and then we have a standard set of tests that we always do. And we always do it because every now and then, once a year, we look, we look like prats because we miss something that we shouldn't have spotted. Uh, but you normally, you, you normally can spot. You might not get the right diagnosis, but you can spot like, things that worry me. So if I see a patient who's got weight loss, that worries me much, much more than weight gain or normal weight, okay? So, you know, there are things that you start to learn. Someone who's just come back from abroad, that always, that rings bells because that's unusual, etc. So the certain things that you learn um, make you more concerned and other things that, that, that don't. And, and I'm afraid the only answer to that is to try it and it gets easier as you get older and you get more experienced. Um, but also you, you have checklists that you go through. The second thing is not to keep repeating them. 
because we also know, and I'm sure we'll get on this in a minute, but is that reassurance is a very dangerous thing. So you can reassure people once, you do the studies and you do the tests and you say, okay, I'm now very confident you don't have what we call diseases, okay? And, and diseases are where there is explicit pathology. Okay, so we, we have, a, it's quite useful to think in terms of, you know, for the rest of your lives about the people you'll see will be divided between those who, 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 are, who have distress, those who have illnesses and those who have diseases. Most of the time in medicine, you concentrate on those who have diseases, those who have chest pain and have ischemic heart disease, those who have fatigue and have anemia, those who have headaches and have brain tumors. In fact, all of those three things are actually quite unusual. And indeed, the relationship between headaches and brain tumors is almost non-existent. But that's what you'll do in medical school. But when you become doctors, you'll spend most of your time dealing with people who have illnesses. Okay, that they're feeling unwell, but there isn't an, a clear underlying pathology. So most people who turn up to see a cardiologist for the first time with chest pain don't have ischemic heart disease. Most of the people who turn up in a gastroenterology clinic for the first time will not turn out to have UC or colitis um, or, or, or um, Crohn's disease. They may have irritable bowel syndrome, things like that, which are illnesses rather than diseases. So that's what you'll learn as you slightly get a bit older. You'll realize that most of life is about illnesses. Most of medical school is about diseases. Mm. That's actually a really nice way to put it. Um, that brings us on quite nicely onto what I wanted to talk about next. So last week I had a chat with Gavin, who was my peer mentor at medical school in Manchester, about an experience that he had diagnosing himself at medical school. During my third year of medical school, whilst I was on a cardiology placement, we were doing an ECG practical. And at the time, there were no patients in the department, so we carried out the ECGs on each other. And at the end of the session, when we looked at the readouts, I noticed my ECG had T-wave inversion to V4 as well as right axis deviation. And at the time, I showed my demonstrator who said it was most likely due to the fact that the, the wires had been positioned in the wrong place as it was our first time doing ECGs and not to worry about it. However, I did continue to think about it and it did concern me. So I showed my supervisor whilst I was in their echo clinic and they then said the similar things. It was probably incorrect wire position, so they carried out another ECG. However, the T-wave inversion and the right axis deviation was still there. So then they carried out an echo on me and this showed right ventricular dilatation. They then took a history from me and the main thing from the history was I was previously very active as a competitive swimmer and I used to run a lot as well as going to the gym and then from there they then referred me to a cardiologist who specializes in cardiomyopathy and genetic cardiology who then took similar histories but also did a number of tests one of which was an MRI which showed fibrosis and fatty infiltration of both my left and right ventricles and from this as well as uh, the ECGs in my history, I got a diagnosis of arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, ARVC. And with ARVC, you are predispos predisposed to getting um, arrhythmias, life-threatening arrhythmias. And as such, uh, I was offered an ICD, which I took for peace of mind. And that happened. So I was diagnosed in February. The ICD was then implanted in May and then it was good. But however, in 
late August or early September of the same year, I had a DVT in my left subclavian vein where the wires of the ICD came into the vein. Uh, so that was treated with surgery and then with medication. Uh, yeah. So I think Gavin's story is quite interesting because essentially what happened with him in an ECG practical was that they ended up screening completely healthy individuals who had no symptoms and ended up discovering something that could have ended up harming him a lot more if they hadn't found it. So what is everyone's thoughts about sort of when we end up screening completely healthy individuals and whether that does more harm or good. Okay, firstly, just to say, I thought this episode was supposed to reassure people that they probably don't have something wrong with them. <laughs> That's really freaked me out, Nikki. Thank you. In, in in a vein, in a similar vein, Anna, I think I have a story that could help lighten it a little bit. Go on. At the, I'll, say, I'll say it at the end. Okay. Screening, screening is an intervention. And like all interventions, it can do harm and it can do good. And that, and that story was a very good one because it clearly picked up something. Um, I have no idea, you know, whether or not uh, an ICD was needed or not. Obviously, that's not my field at all. But what is my field is, is randomised controlled trials. And also my field is the harm that medical interventions can do because this story also included harm. He got a subclavian um, thrombosis that he wouldn't have got without mm. the intervention. And the only way... The only way you can answer your question, I'm afraid, is through RCTs. So happens I've written a book on RCTs called <laughs> The RCT. Hasn't sold very well, so perhaps you can spread some copies around now. <laughs> but there is no other way of working out because all screening does harm. And the, the famous book, Mio Gray's book on screening, the first line is all screening does harm. Some also does good. And the only way you can separate out the good from the harm is through an RCT. But all screening does harm. Every time you screen someone, you're exposing them. They're a normal person without symptoms, okay? You're exposing them to the risks of iatrogenesis of causing harm. You may also do good, and that's fine. But you will also do harm. And that's the only way is to balance it out. They all do harm. There's no such thing as completely safe screening. And that's why we do have in this country pretty strict rules on implementing screening programs only when you have good evidence from at least one, preferably more, well-conducted RCT. So it's a really difficult question. We spent three years doing a study on um, screening soldiers coming back from war, because that's one of the things I do. And in most countries in the world, they get screened for mental health problems, but there's no evidence for it. So we did the first ever randomized controlled trial of our soldiers coming back from Afghanistan randomize 100 to 10,000 of them to get mental health screening or not mental health screening. What do you think the results were? What do you think we found? It wasn't beneficial. To yeah, it wasn't beneficial at all. Had absolutely no benefit whatsoever. It was a complete waste of time or money. So that means we don't do it. But the second law of screening is that once you start a screening program, it's almost impossible to stop it, even if it's mm. harmful. So we are really, really cautious about that now. And, and Gavin, it was Gavin, wasn't it? Gavin's yeah. story shows both the benefits and harms. And in the end, you know, if we were to seriously advocate that every student should have an ECG, we should be screening them for cardiomyopathies, um, we would need evidence from a trial to mm. show that that's beneficial. 
I've no idea. Maybe it's been done. I don't know. I don't think so because I don't think we do routinely screen people for cardiomyopathies. No, but, uh, but then again, like the aortic aneurysm or um, colonic uh, carcinoma, um, there, you know, I'm now at that age, so I've had that screening, and the evidence is overwhelming that that saves lives. So we do it. But most screening tests don't. But yeah, I just think it's, I think it's really interesting because it's so well to me at least it's very anti-intuitive like you would think like you know if we give everyone give everyone a ct scan every year like that would be good wouldn't it but no (laughs) um and the other thing i was gonna say is i will find this and send this to you nikki this article so that you can put it in the the description um there's this really really good article that i read about how medicine is all about balance and about risk benefit analysis and it's just like something that i have been thinking about for a long time but um this article just really crystallized it really well um and just made me think like yeah okay i've got i've got the right idea here someone else thinks the same thing as me um (laughs) But I think, like, my health, just to bring it back to, like, the whole medical student syndrome thing, like, I knew that I wasn't going to have a brain hemorrhage. Like, I knew that. But it didn't stop me from thinking about it pretty much every day for about six months. So, I don't know, it's really tricky, isn't it? You're right, it is exactly about balance, and I think that's sort of the theme of why I got Gavin's story for the episode. Yeah, exactly, it's about the balance of the risks in comparison to the benefit yeah and and you know they are judgment calls and in individuals it's very difficult to make those judgments but in populations it's a bit easier and finally we do have to decide you know if we're going to do a screening program is there good evidence for it or not we have to Okay, you mentioned that you had another story that might help reassure us a little bit. <laughs> it is, it is a, re- it's a really, really short story. It's going to take like 15 seconds. Go for it. So many, many moons ago when we were first led in the RESP exam and, you know, you know, you're doing like peer practice and everything. I was the patient and um, I really needed to burp. <laughs> So I held my birth in and when my friend was auscultated my chest, she heard like a weird crackle and her face just went, oh my God. And I was like, oh no, no, it's a burp, it's okay. God, only in Dundee. (laughs) It's strange, you do pick up a lot of things about at medical school though, even if they're not that significant. Like I learned in my first year that I've got a slight sinus arrhythmia I've got a slightly irregular heartbeat but it's not anything to worry about at all it's just mm. every fifth beat is just slightly later than the rest of them and it's regularly irregular but all my friends in the sort of fist farm practical were like oh my god everyone feel Nikki's pulse it's so weird I mean the other cautionary tale is a very famous study done many years ago now I don't know if you still talk about in cardiology when you're doing your training um, about innocent murmurs is that still a phrase that's used yeah so you you hear a kid and you hear a murmur and, and then the, they say oh that's just an innocent murmur they'll grow out of it and a study looked at kids that had got innocent murmurs turned out they weren't innocent at all nothing to do with cardiology but the point is that the kid and the parents started to change their behavior towards the child with the innocent murmur and many of them this is in the new england journal years ago then went on to develop anxiety disorders depressive disorders etc because they'd been they didn't really know what the innocent murmur was but they knew there's something wrong with the heart and so you'd given someone 
uh, this label, the innocent murmur, and the label itself was doing the damage. And damage it was, not, not insubstantial, mainly through uh, much, uh, an increased rate of depression and anxiety that persisted for many years. So, you know, that's another reason for being very careful uh, when we say, oh, well, it's, you know, it, it's an innocent murmur. The act of, act of actually doing it created illness, not disease, but created illness. And, and so I was, one was hoping that we'd phased out that phrase, innocent murmur, but we apparently haven't. <laughs> I also think another interesting thing that Gavin mentioned in his clip was that he was, it was sort of brushed aside at the beginning because they said, oh, you're a medical student, it's the first time you're doing an ECG, you've done it wrong. Anna and Oki, if you guys ever experienced that where you think you might fa- find something, be it yourself or in yourself or your peer or in a patient, and people have just thought, no, you've probably done it wrong. No, I'm perfect. <laughs> Same. Um, <laughs> no, I actually... I've never really found anything in anyone. Not even patients. Like, oh, okay, not not in patients. Like, I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, when you when you're in clinical skills and yeah. you do like peer examination and stuff. Like, everyone's. I I think it must be like the water in Dundee. Like every everyone in Dundee just doesn't seem to have anything apart from it's all me. that sunshine. Um, <laughs> No. I don't know. I think I doubt myself more than other I, people have doubted me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I had a patient um <laughs> like relatively recently who came in saying that they had a lump and I like felt it for ages and I was like, I can't feel a lump. Like I can't feel a lump. I don't know if I'm doing it wrong or I'm not. Or or there isn't a lump. And then I was like, I'm really sorry, but I can't feel a lump. And the GP was like, I'm totally convinced that there's no lump there. Don't worry about it. So I think it's, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I it's think reassuring. sometimes you doubt yourself more. It's difficult to say now because I feel like I'm like coming towards the end of my medical school career. So I feel like relatively confident at some things. But yeah, I couldn't feel that lump. That's good to hear. <laughs> Indeed, you say you're coming to the end of your medical school career. We do know that the incidence of kind of medical student anxiety, or whatever we're going to call it, decreases uh, through the years of medical school. It does do that. Uh, unfortunately, also decreases as medical students' empathy goes down at the same rate as well. And, and certainly, it's important just to remember the real problem that, that doctors have with their health is not over-diagnosis and, and um, over-labeling, it's the exact opposite. Uh, and over a career, the main problem doctors have is not taking their symptoms seriously. Mm. It's been rubbish at managing their own illnesses, taking far too long to, to uh, present with symptoms. So over a career in medicine, under-diagnosis, under-recognition and under-presentation is much more common than over-presentation and over-diagnosis and over-labeling. So uh, my wife runs a service for sick doctors and, and, and will tell you, doctors are actually far from um, constantly diagnosing themselves, actually do the opposite, even when they're doing things like coughing up blood which you would wow. think, you know, well, oh, well, coughing up blood, wow, you know, you're going to do something about that. No, no, no. They're much worse. They're much more lackadaisical. They, they dismiss symptoms, which they shouldn't, uh, in themselves and in their families. Uh, and that's actually, over a career in medicine, that's actually a more serious issue than what we're talking about, uh, anxiety on, on normal symptoms that, that probably aren't going to be reflective of pathology. Yeah. So you so should think should about that as you paranoid. get older. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, like <laughs> when you get old, medical student syndrome isn't a real thing. Mm. Then, like, it, it's also, very well justified. <laughs> well, it, it's also coming back to what you said: the prior probability of symptoms and decayed pathology goes up as you get older. Mm. You're in the golden age now. Most of your symptoms probably won't, but in my age, they probably will. So, you know, yeah, done that. in fifty years' time, you'll be <laughs> that different. <positive> note. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do think that at the end of the day, it can be really hard to be neutral when you're the subject of question. You can't really view your own symptoms or history from a completely unbiased point of view like a doctor's meant to. So I guess that the takeaway message from today can be to stay aware and like be vigilant if you do notice things about yourself, especially if your friends or your tutors are noticing those things as well. And don't be ashamed to follow them up. Um, and I guess we'll talk a little bit more about this in the next episode because our next episode is about being a patient as a medical student but until then that's all from us on sharp scratch today if you'd like to hear more from us subscribe to sharp scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks time you'll get our next episode straight to your phone while you wait for the next episode, make sure you check us out on social media. We're BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag SharpScratch. We'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover later in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps other med students find the show. Until then, goodbye from us. Bye. Cheers, uh.